Thanks, Gordon, and it's great to be here in Winkler today to share a little bit about the work of Food Grains Bank and uh, some of the work that I get to be involved in and, and get to see uh, some of it in person and some of it uh, by distance. So it's great to be able to share some of the stories uh, with you today. And what I want to do today is to share a little bit with you about the situation in the world today, where we're at, what do things look like, uh, and then take you on a bit of a trip so that we can see, uh, meet some people and see some sites of the things uh, that show what Food Grains Bank and, and the, our partners and our members that we're working with are doing around the world. We'll go to the next slide. So, I won't say a lot about Food Grains Bank. I think that many of us in the room are familiar with the Food Grains Bank. Um, what I want to say is that it's really exciting to be part of an association, a network of 15 different church-based agencies all working together to end hunger around the world. And regardless of whatever other differences there may be that these agencies are able to come together uh, and, and work to, to alleviate hunger. And so it's an exciting organization to be part of and really appreciate the work that we're able to do uh, on emergency food assistance, meeting immediate needs, building longer term uh, food security, uh, and then also uh, engaging Canadians, talking to Canadians about global hunger issues. Gordon, we'll go forward two slides. 193 million. That is the number of people in the world today who are acutely food insecure. This number is the biggest it has ever been. Last year was also a record. It was 150 million people. So we've gone, we set a record last year, we've set a record again this year, and all expectations are that we will set another record next year. We are in the midst of what can be described as an unprecedented global hunger crisis. Now for years, if I had come to do this presentation, I would have said, well, the world is getting better. There's people, more people are food secure each year than they were the year before. But in the last few years, things have begun to change. Go to the next slide. And what are some of the reasons for that change? Well, number one is conflict. Most people who are hungry in the world today live in places that are experiencing conflict. Uh, or have fled uh, an area that is experiencing conflict. And so that would be people uh, like places in Syria and Lebanon, uh, the Rohingya people from, uh, who fled from Myanmar to Bangladesh, uh, places in, in uh, South Sudan or uh, Congo. Around the world, over, of that 193 million, well over 100 million of those are in places that are experiencing conflict. So that is the biggest driver of, of hunger today. And along with conflict, you have displacement, people forced to leave their homes. And whereas once displacement would often have been somewhat short, you, you leave for a little while and then you come back, the conflicts are, taking, are lasting longer and longer. So right now, the average time that someone is displaced if they have to leave their home is 17 years. So these are long-term crises that are not being resolved. The second major driver of hunger today is uh, economic crises. And particularly, we're seeing that manifested in rising food prices. Now, we see rising food prices here in Canada, but it's something that we see around the world. I was talking with a partner in Zimbabwe this last week, 
And they were talking about having uh, inflation rates now of 197%. So if you, I think here it's around 8%, so in that's, you know, that's a challenge for, for many. Imagine 197%. Or I mean, when I was in Turkana in Kenya uh, recently, the price of the main staples that people rely on, things like uh, maize flour or, or sunflower oil, had doubled or close to doubled between December and April. So over the span of about four or five months, uh, the food prices had nearly doubled in that community. This is something we're seeing around the world. Uh, and it's increasingly an issue, and particularly because of the war in Ukraine, uh, that has caused further shortages and food price increases uh, in many parts of the world, because many parts of the world get a lot of their imports from uh, Russia and Ukraine. And finally, uh, um, another really big driver of hunger in our world today is climate issues. And so we see, I'll show you some situations in the world that are experiencing long-term drought. There's other places that we're working with that are experiencing flooding, uh, other natural disasters, and so that's, that's also a significant contributor uh, to the, the problem that we see today. And I would say all of these things just got a little bit more tricky because of the pandemic, that uh, as we experience here, people lost their jobs, people, uh, uh, you know, Borders were shut down, so trade opportunities were lost, and that just made the whole situation more complex, and, uh, and, and people are still recovering from that. So we'll go to the next slide. So that's talking about some of the challenges in the world today, and, and I think it's important to have that in the back of our minds because the situation is very critical. But what I want to show you today, when we go on this tour in just a moment, is to show you some of the work that Food Grades Bank is supporting with our partners around the world to, to address the situation. And I, I get to manage a program that is working in eight countries, uh, seven of which are in Africa, one in Asia, uh, to implement projects that combine the short-term response, meeting people's immediate food needs now, with also building people's uh, food security for the future. So it's trying to combine the short and the long-term together. Uh, strengthening that long-term recovery, but also meeting people's immediate needs today. So let's, we're gonna get on, a, get on our imaginary plane now. You don't have to go to the airport. You don't have to wait in the line. Uh, you don't have to get jet lag. We're gonna, we are all of a sudden transported to Kenya. And uh, this is a place that I visited a couple of months ago. Uh, in an area called Turkana. Turkana is in northwestern Kenya. It's a very dry area, uh, has always been a dry area. It's, an, it's a pastoralist area, uh, an area where people rely primarily on livestock for their, for their livelihoods. Turkana has been heavily impacted by a drought that has uh, covered much of the Horn of Africa, places like Ethiopia, Kenya, uh, Somalia, over the last number of years. Uh, since 2019, the rains have failed every rainy season. Uh, there's typically two rainy seasons a year. They have all failed since 2019. As a result, water sources are drying up. When we were there, 80% of, people, uh, of people's water sources had dried up. Uh, livestock are getting sick because they don't have access to pasture land, have a hard time accessing water. Uh, people are forced to dump their livestock on the market, and so the market for livestock has, uh, 
has gone down. Whereas once you could get 4,000 Kenyan shillings for a goat, you can now maybe get 1,500. Uh, so the market has collapsed just as people are also experiencing rising food prices. This is where those food prices had doubled in uh, just a few months. Go to the next slide. If, if you're driving down the road in Turkana, this is what you would see. You would see a lot of sand, a lot, not a lot of vegetation. It's, as I said, it's always been a dry area. Different areas have different kinds of, have sort of low shrubs and bushes, but you know, this is pretty typical. Now, drought has always happened in Turkana. That's not new, uh, except drought would have once have been happening about once every 10 years or so, so maybe a little bit more regularly. But there was always time for people to recover before the next one would come. So you would know that once in a while there would be a drought, and so you, you, you would sort of account for that. You'd have, have, you know, you would sell some animals, you'd be able to uh, cope with that drought. But increasingly those droughts are coming more regularly now, and they're lasting longer. So people don't have the same time to be able to recover from one drought before the next one begins. We'll go to the next slide. So in Turkana, I met with uh, one of our partners there, an organization called Adra Kenya. And as I said, they, they are meeting immediate needs while also helping people rebuild for the long term. And you can see a woman here holding up her phone, and that's because Adra Kenya is delivering cash to people to help them buy the food that they need, but is doing it over their phones. There's a, a network in Kenya called M-Pesa, uh, where you can receive and send money on your phone. Uh, and so people, uh, uh, this, this woman in, in Turkana is receiving money, has received money every month uh, on her mobile phone. Uh, in this project, they're each receiving 6,662 Kenyan shillings a month, which works out to about $70 Canadian, thereabouts. And as you'll see as we go on our tour around, around the world here, that in different places people are using different ways to help people meet their immediate needs. And as I, this one is using cash, and what's interesting, when you give people cash, they spend almost all of it, but people are, are food insecure, but people are hungry, and you give them cash, they spend almost all of that money on food. Uh, so in this project, uh, well over 80% of the, of the cash that was given was spent on food, uh, and the remainder was spent on things like school fees and medical costs and so on. So what kind of impact does this have? Well, uh, one of the women we met with, a woman named Florence Niaro, said that the cash has helped us so much. Many people were so down. We used to eat one meal a day as a coping strategy, but now we can eat three. Another woman named Alice said that since we joined the project, we don't sleep hungry anymore. Women were down and good was hard to come by. Our children were unable to eat. But with the cash, we have food. We have clothed our children and paid school fees, amongst other household needs. So the, the cash that's being provided is giving people what they need for the short term. But obviously the cash cannot continue forever. We need to be thinking about uh, how uh, uh, to create something more sustainable. So we'll go to the next slide. So there's a number of things that are happening, and I'll show you a couple of them. This is a group of women, about 20 women, who are gathered together in what's called a savings group. So every week the women come uh, to meet as a group, uh, and they put aside a little bit of money for saving, and they, there's a box there in the middle 
Uh, and there's three locks to that box, so all three women with a key have to be there to open the box. This is their common box. They put the money in that box, and the woman sitting in the chair there uh, is recording how much each person is putting in the box, so they know how much every person has saved. And then what they also do is, once there's money in the box, they lend it out to members of the group. So if you're a member of the group and you want to buy chickens to raise, or you want to uh, start a small business, or you want, or you have some other idea for some way to earn some more income, you can go to your group and, and, and ask them for a loan. And these loans are far more accessible and far cheaper than the loans you could get elsewhere. Uh, and then what, once you've started your business, you pay back your loan and then the next person can have a loan and, and it keeps going around. As one of the participants in this group said, I walk shoulders high now, knowing that I have saved. And these groups actually, you know, it's very small amounts of money. Maybe they're saving a dollar a week per person, two dollars a week. Some groups are saving less than that. But when they do this over a period of time and, and you have people, everyone is contributing and then you also have uh, you know, people paying their interest back to the group, the, the amount of money that these groups have begins to grow and grow and it becomes a way that within the community itself, the money from their own community can help uh, rebuild that community to create income, to create jobs, to create businesses. We'll see a few more of these as we go on our tour. We'll go to the next slide. So the woman in the picture that you see here is named Nakanuit uh, Nanyanga Nakadanyingiro, uh, who is a 45-year-old woman living in Turkana. She's one of those people who received the cash transfer, that money on their phone. Um, and she's also a member of a savings group. So she's been saving money in the group, and she's used that money to uh, invest in uh, adding stock to her store. This is her store that we're looking at here. And as, since she's added stock to her store, she's been selling more things, she's earned more profit, and with that profit, she's been able to send her son to high school. So you can see that even small investments, small investments by the community members themselves in these savings groups, people are then taking that and running with it and creating new opportunities for themselves and for their families and for their communities. We'll go to the next slide. This is a watermelon farm. And if you imagine that first picture that I showed you of Turkana, the dry one with basically very little growing, if you're driving through Turkana, that's almost all that you see. You drive for an hour and you see nothing but essentially that. And then you get close to the river. Uh, and you go over a little, a little rise and you descend down into the river and all of a sudden it's lush and green. And you, you can meet a group of farmers like the one you see here. People haven't always farmed in Turkana. Farming is really new, and one of the things our partner there, Adra, is doing is, is helping people start farming because there is potential there along the river, even though it's such a dry place, but they're able to use irrigation from the river uh, to grow crops. They've started growing a number of different crops, but one of the most successful has been watermelon, and there's a ready market for watermelon in the area. So uh, they're able to sell each of these watermelons for about 400 shillings, which is about four Canadian dollars. And this year, uh, after their first harvest, they estimated that they were able to harvest about, uh, uh, they were able to sell about 63,000 shillings worth of watermelons. Now, that's uh, quick math here, uh, what about $650 of watermelons, and they are now harvesting a second crop shortly. They're estimating now they're able to get 100,000 shillings from their watermelons, plus their other crops. 
So these are, this is a group of people who's come together, they're farming for the first time, they farm now for a year, uh, and they are, uh, you know, on a relatively small scale, able to begin to produce income for their households and their families. Go to the next slide. Here's a, a crop of maize that they're growing in one of these farms, and what excited me about the maize wasn't, uh, wasn't the maize, even though it was in really good shape, it was that people had purchased the maize seed themselves. The project had not provided the maize seed. The project provided a few vegetables and watermelon seeds, but uh, farmers had, or the farmers who were growing the food thought that maize was also important, so they made sure to buy their own seed, and it, it's doing very well. So people are taking initiative, people are, are using their own resources, adding on to what has been provided and helping to shape uh, their future. We'll get back on the airplane then, we'll go to another stop. This time we'll go to Nigeria. And uh, to the area of Borno, which is in northeastern Nigeria. And Borno has exper experienced conflict for over 10 years now. And maybe you've heard in the news of Boko Haram. Uh, it's a, a, a terrorist group that's been uh, uh, in, in that area for some time. Um, there's conflict between these various armed groups and the Nigerian government. And as so often happens in conflict, it's the civilians, the, the regular people who are stuck in the middle. And over two million people have been forced to flee their homes. Uh, and, and many end up around a few of the larger cities in Borno. And so that's where we'll, that's where we'll visit, uh, near the city of Maiduguri, which is the biggest city in Borno. Uh, uh, we have a partner named Zoa who is working with the internally displaced people, the people from that area who've been displaced. Go to the next slide. And there they are also doing a cash project. So this is similar in, in like the first project we saw, except here they're giving physical cash instead of cash by phone. Uh, and Zoa is also helping people with agricultural inputs, start helping people start small businesses, help doing those savings groups like we talked about, um, and helping people uh, who are displaced meet those immediate needs, but again, begin to develop uh, opportunities for people uh, in their new homes uh, to restore hope and restore livelihoods. And I was talking with them a couple of weeks ago, and they said that one of the biggest changes that they see, and it's not something we can, we can measure very easily or put in a survey, but one of the biggest changes they see when they talk to people is hope. People, when they were forced to flee their homes, lost the hope and, you know, you, you lose, you know, you lost your possessions, you lost the place that you're from, you don't feel like there's much hope for the future. But they're beginning to see that hope rekindled as people uh, engage with the project and have more and more opportunities uh, to, to, to begin to change, change their lives and change their communities. So let's meet a couple of the people involved in this project. This is what's called a kitchen garden. Uh, it's, you know, you could almost call it like a backyard garden in our context. Uh, and uh, the woman in this picture is named Maimuna Adamadrisa. Uh, she's uh, one of those internally displaced people. She had a husband and four children. And uh, she was trained on, on food production, on how to harvest water uh, to use in her, her vegetable garden. And uh, she's been growing five types of seeds, sorrel, okra, spinach, tomatoes, and onions. And these were provided by the project. She says, you know, she says, we planted all the five seeds. It gives us a better yield now, and we are using the harvest for our own consumption. So they now have healthy food in the household. Uh, 
I have my vegetables in the garden to prepare meals for my family. And I sold excess vegetables, which helps my family buy water, breakfast for the children going to school, and for other needs. So people, uh, starting with a small thing, five seeds, five, or five packets of seeds, uh, and it's now not only impacting people's diet, but impacting their whole life. We'll go to the next one. Uh, this woman is named Asta Abdurrahman. She is 25 years old, and she's been displaced now for nearly six years uh, from her home. Uh, as a result of attacks by armed groups, she was forced to flee. And she is one of those women who is receiving, or one of those households, from one of those households receiving cash assistance. And so she's been receiving 18,850 Nigerian Naira, or about $60 a month, uh, over the last... Uh, I believe about 10 months she received it. But while she was receiving that cash transfer, she was also receiving business training. And she was also uh, then received a business startup kit to start her own store. And with this store, uh, which you can see, this is her shop behind her here. With this shop, uh, she's been earning an income, earning a livelihood, and she's been able to use the profits to buy two goats. And those goats now, along with her shop, uh, will help her uh, have a more sustainable livelihood going into the future. Once that, that cash transfer is now over, uh, she's not, the cash has now ended, but she has this shop that she can rely on and she has these goats. And she also talked about education, about how having the shop and now the goats is helping her send her kids to school and helping to keep her family healthy. We'll, we'll uh, jump to another country here, South Sudan. This is another country impacted deeply by conflict. And the area of South Sudan that we're visiting today, Kajo Keji, is right in the south of South Sudan. It's on the border with Uganda, or at the very south of the country. It's part of what's known as the breadbasket of South Sudan. This is a rich agricultural area. There's tons of potential in this area for agriculture. The climate is good, the soil is good, uh, this is uh, perfect growing conditions. But the area uh, has experienced a lot of conflict over the years. And more recently, one of the bigger conflicts was in around 2016 to 2017, when there was a fairly significant civil war in South Sudan. That forced lots of people to flee into neighboring Uganda, uh, where they lived in refugee camps for a number of years. And uh, now people are starting to come back home. It's a little bit calmer now. There's still occasional uh, issues. One of the issues now is that there are armed cattle herders who come in with their cattle uh, and force people off their farms once in a while. Uh, but people are feeling, feeling confident to come back home. But when they come back home, uh, remember that they have left home five, six years ago. Uh, they left their possessions behind. They went, they lived in a refugee camp for five or six years. And now they're coming home and they, they don't have a lot to, uh, to restart with. They're starting from, starting from zero. So go to the next slide. So this is the kind of picture probably that, uh, that we often associate with South Sudan. This is a picture of a, a food distribution. So just I showed you a couple of projects where we're giving cash as the way that we're supporting people. Here people are being supported with food. So they're receiving um, maize, uh, beans, oil, and I think salt as well. So when people come back, they have, they have very little to, to start with, very little when they come back, and so uh, 
those people returning to the area are one of the key groups that's targeted when we look at doing food assistance in this area. Helping people buffer for those first um, months when they come back uh, into the area. Helping people, giving people some time to restart their livelihoods. The next slide, group. But at the same time, wanting to create other opportunities as well. And so the partner there, Tier Fund South Sudan, has created 50 farming groups, and each farming group has 20 members in it, so they have 1,000 farmers that they're working with. And fortunately, in Kajokeji, land is of no, there's no shortage of land, there's no shortage of opportunity, and people are learning, uh, relearning some agriculture. Uh, many people have been farmers before, but maybe have been away from it a while when they were forced to leave. So learning agricultural techniques, being helped to restart uh, their agricultural operations, and, uh, and also uh, yeah, benefiting from that, that food assistance. So to hear from a couple of the participants there, there's a, a man named Peter John, who said, I was selected as a food assistance participant, and I was also in a farmer's group. I was very happy the food was enough, the food he received from the assistance, to push me till we harvested our own beans and maize. When we harvested, life became good. Another a woman from that area named Jocelyn said, we've now learned modern farming techniques like row planting and crop spacing. And in the savings group she's part of, I have access to loans and I bought poultry and livestock. I can pay for school, can buy food for my children, and I have also constructed a new hut for my family. So as people are given these opportunities, uh, they are running with them, creating more and more opportunities, building on, on, on the items that have been given to them, but also investing themselves uh, in their farms and in their families. Go to the next slide. So this is just to show you another one of these savings groups. Um, and you'll notice that both the groups I've shown you are pretty much all women, and it's not always that way. Uh, often, though, that the, the members of these groups are women. And one of the reasons for that is that in many contexts, women have very few opportunities to have leadership roles in the communities. Uh, women have very few opportunities for uh, ec economic opportunities, and also even have very few opportunities to socialize, connect with others. And so these savings groups play multiple functions. One, you're saving money and getting loans and being able to start your own businesses. So that's contributing to economic empowerment. But it's also giving places, places for people, uh, particularly for women, to become leaders, to take on leadership roles, uh, to gain confidence in, in leadership, uh, and also to have a place to share about the problems and the challenges that they're facing in life and celebrate the successes that they experience with others. So it's also a great social opportunity as well. So we'll go to the next slide. So meeting one of these people who's in one of these groups, this is a woman named Esther. She's 36 years old. Uh, she lives in a remote area in this, in this region of Kajokeji. Uh, and she has been part of the project in a number of ways. She's had some agricultural training. She's part of a savings group. She had been forced to flee Kajokeji in 2016 uh, as a result of the violence that broke out and, and spent six years in Uganda. And so she's just come back to what remained of her village uh, to forge a new, a new beginning, really, a new, a new livelihood. But just as with other returnees, she was facing a great shortage of uh, food. And so she said that we started from nothing. 
We didn't have, and she talked a little bit about her savings group, we didn't know how to run a savings group, but we were mobilized and trained by a tier fund on various skills. And then we agreed as a group to contribute 1,000 South Sudanese pounds a week as capital. And so that's about $1.50 probably, Canadian. And later we were able to take some loans, which we paid back with interest to support our group. And her group gets together now every Thursday to make their contributions, they discuss future plans, uh, and they share challenges and ideas with each other. Now with her savings, Esther was able to do a few things. One of them is that she was able to buy household items that she needed. Because people, as I said, come back with very few physical possessions, so she was buying things like plates and cups and cutlery. Uh, and this is a big deal for people. People are really excited to do this. But she also started a small business and with the money the group has loaned her. And she says that with her profits, she was able to pay for her daughter's school fees. Uh, and so, and now that she has, uh, she's been saving again, she's gonna get, hopes to get another loan soon. And with that loan, she hopes to build a house for her family. So people are restoring their livelihoods. They're meeting, the project is meeting those immediate needs as people get back to the country, they have very little food, but also giving them uh, a roadmap a route to, uh, to a different, uh, uh, to, to more opportunities. We'll go to the next slide. And we're going to go south now to Zimbabwe, uh, an area called Masvingo, which is in sort of the southeastern part of Zimbabwe. And it's an area that's been affected by irregular rainfall. Uh, some areas this last year got fantastic rains, but in the neighboring district, their crops were complete failures. So the rain was very scattered. Uh, and so lots of areas now where they're working uh, have been completely, have had their crops completely wiped out. Now this is an area that was really affected by COVID. Partly because of the disease itself, but also partly because uh, people used to go to South Africa for work and send money back home. And that was a key way that people dealt with the droughts and other issues that they were experiencing. But because of the COVID pandemic, uh, people weren't, uh, people lost their jobs and then were forced to leave South Africa and go home. Uh, and so then lots of those income sources had dried up. There's also really, as I mentioned earlier, very high rates of inflation in Zimbabwe. So there's lots of different challenges people are dealing with. Go to the next slide. Okay, there we go. So this is one of the food assistance distributions that was happening in this area. And in Zimbabwe, uh, as in many other countries in the world, there's what's called a lean season. So there's a time of the year uh, before the harvest comes that is, has the highest levels of hunger in the year. And in Zimbabwe, this typically, in the areas that, where we're working in Zimbabwe, typically starts in about October, November, and then runs into um, March, March, April. So here is a food assistance distribution, people receiving the food that they need uh, for today. We'll go to the next slide. But here is a husband and wife, Charles and Memory, who are working on their farm on conservation agriculture. So you can see the soil cover there on their farm as part of this. Uh, and, and they are using this, uh, growing their food now using conservation agriculture that they've learned through the project, which is allowing them to conserve water in their soil, improve the health of their soil, and uh, ultimately improve the health of their crop. And in fact, when this year, when there were complete crop failures on many crops in the area, 
It's those farmers who are practicing conservation agriculture that didn't experience a crop failure, that continue to have a relatively decent harvest. Now, their hope is that with uh, this, new, this new approach for them, it will allow them to grow a surplus, uh, which they can fill their granary and fund their children's education. Go to the next slide. This woman here is named Monica Chabaya. She is one of 20 members of, a Chum of the Chamagona Garden uh, in Gutu, Zimbabwe. And she's displaying some of the farm produce there that they've grown in this, it's a community garden, but it's bigger, it's, it's not maybe a community garden that we would think of here, it's quite a big uh, space. And they are growing food both for their household consumption, you know, various vegetables so they can consume them at home, but also to sell them as well, uh, to earn an income, to, and also to raise money to ensure that the, the garden is able to continue to go after it receives support from the park, after the project support is done. So you can see again uh, the pride on her face with, of the vegetables that they've produced here and the excitement about uh, the work that's happening at this garden. People coming together, and I think this is something we often hear, and you'll see it in the savings groups, you see it in these farming groups, uh, lots of different times where people come together uh, to help make their lives and their communities better. Uh, people uh, like this garden group who've come together are working together to, uh, to, to have a healthier future. Here's another group. Uh, this is a group raising rabbits. So this was another part of this project was to work on small-scale livestock as, a, as an income diversification strategy. Uh, so this group called themselves the Batanai Group, also in Gutu. Uh, and the group received 10 rabbits to start uh, to begin uh, uh, generating income uh, from rabbits. Other people received chickens uh, and also began a similar uh, approach. Once the groups received the rabbits, then they're responsible for you know, creating the housing for the rabbits, finding the food for the rabbits, and so on, um, and working together to, uh, to then market rab the rabbits uh, after they have grown to size. People coming together, making their communities better. The last stop on our tour today is to uh, DR Congo, and this is another context that has been deeply impacted by conflict over many years, uh, since probably the mid-1990s. Um, North Kivu is right on the eastern side of DR Congo and is home to over 120 different armed groups. Uh, there's a few large ones, many small localized ones, um, but it's an incredibly challenging place. Uh, and conflict seems to uh, come and, and go fairly regularly. And it's led to over 1.2 million people being displaced. And they've been displaced for a long time. So the, the project I'm about to show you, which is actually an, an MCC project, uh, the people there have been displaced now for, I think, almost 10 years, uh, five to 10 years. And uh, the area that they have been displaced from has recently, the conflict there has recently reemerged. So it's continuing to cause, uh, cause problems. So there, the partner that MCC is working with is named ECC Miru, and they're doing a few things. One is that they're providing food assistance during those lean seasons, during those times of year when people don't have enough to eat. The second thing that they're doing is they are um, 
helping people uh, grow food, and they're doing that in a few ways. One of them is for those people who are displaced, who've come to the area but don't have their own land, don't have a way to grow food, they're actually renting land to enable people to grow food. And they're also providing agricultural training. They have agronomists who are supporting farmers to improve their production techniques. Um, and so you can see here uh, the man in the picture there behind the, the bags of maize uh, is named Kamate Nzanzu. Uh, he is a married father of five uh, in the community of Shasha in DRC. Uh, he says that our crop was struggling to feed our family and send our children to school. The soil had become poor and the yield had been low for some years now. But with this project, we benefited from technical support uh, from agronomists. And the harvest has started to increase and the soil has started to become fertile. He says that we will no longer have difficulties to meet the needs of the family or have a shortage of food and difficulties to pay the school fees of our children. You can see here, he's standing with some of his crop uh, at the end of the, the growing season here. And in this area, he'll be growing things like maize and cassava, sweet potatoes, beans, and so on. Also a very rich agricultural area. Um, but the challenge had been that people couldn't access the land and people's agricultural techniques were, uh, uh, were, were, were inadequate for the situation. One of the things that you'll notice that he talked about was his kids, and you've heard kids' school fees coming up a lot today. And almost every person you know, highlights the importance of the education of their children. And I think that's been really fascinating to see that as soon as people have those resources that they're able to, to put food on the table, the next thought is, how do I get my kids in school? That those two things seem to uh, follow fairly quickly one after the other. Here's another savings group in DRC, and uh, again, trying to diversify livelihood sources. So you're not just reliant on one thing. So if the crops fail, you still have something else to fall back on, a business or some other source of income. Uh, so uh, here are women participating in their savings group, uh, and uh, again, starting small businesses, starting small shops, uh, getting livestock. These are all the kinds of things that people are doing. We'll meet one more person here. This is a woman named Esta Sakina. Uh, she's a 31-year-old woman from Sasha, Shasha. So she's not a displaced person. And it's important when we do work in a place where there's lots of people who've been displaced from somewhere else, that you also work with the people who are from there so you're not creating tension or rivalries between these different groups. So she's married, a mother of four, and she says, my husband is a miner uh, and used to leave for extended periods of time, sometimes three years without thinking about his family. And she used to sell charcoal to eke out a living, um, but that allowed us to survive with difficulty. We had uh, a capital of 22,000 francs and our children were hardly schooled, but she has now joined this project. She's been farming and she's joined the savings group and after joining the savings group, she got a loan and she started selling corn flour, cassava, and other items at a kiosk. And that was successful, so she rented a storeroom and her capital has now grown to 200,000 francs. So almost 10 times what she had to start. She says, my life has changed. Before joining the VSLA, I used to have only 1,000 francs to feed my family. 
But being a member of the savings group and uh, doing this agriculture, I'm now able to spend about 5,000 francs per day. And I'm able to pay the school fees for my son. Harmony reigns in my home. So that brings us to the end of our tour of a number of different places. And I hope that you've seen a few different things as we've, as we've done this. One, that uh, uh, the important connection of meeting people's needs now. I, mean, I talked about those 193 million people who are experiencing acute food insecurity. Meeting those needs today, but also giving people opportunity uh, to, to begin growing livelihoods, be, begin... Uh, uh, improve their farms, uh, start other kinds of businesses so that people uh, are better positioned for the future and that we can achieve sustainable food security. And I hope also that you've noticed that in all of these contexts, the people who are living there are uh, determined to improve their lives, that people are excited and eager and committed to investing in their livelihoods People do not want to be dependent on outside assistance. People want uh, to be proud of, of, of their livelihoods. And so it's interesting to hear, as I talked about with Zoa earlier on, that some of the things you hear from people and hear from projects is, that, is talking about the pride that people have that's coming back, or the self-confidence. People realize, I can do this. I can start a business. I can be a leader in my community. I can... Uh, I, I can grow my crops in a different way than my neighbor grows their crops because I know it's going to be uh, the thing that my family needs. So there's a growing self-confidence, a growing hope, and I think that that's really key for, for the future. So thank you for, for having me here today 